It's February 19th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. And first, we'll look at a few tech stories of note here in the islands, and then we'll be bringing you two news guests to tell you about a couple of great events coming up. Geek Day over at Leeward Community College and the 10th Annual Hawaii State Science Olympiad. Finally, we'll explore how college libraries can transform themselves to serve as information hubs in the digital age. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first the headlines. Well, a team of researchers at the University of Hawaii are hoping to crowdsource their efforts to save the Kamehameha butterfly. Smaller than a monarch butterfly with orange and black wings with white dots, the Kamehameha butterfly is the official state insect. It's also one of only two butterfly species endemic to Hawaii, found nowhere else on Earth. But sightings of the Kamehameha butterfly are few and far between, so the researchers are tapping the public to help broaden their search. Dubbed the Pule Lehua Project, the effort is based at the UH Manoa College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources and funded by the Division of Forestry and Wildlife at the State Department of Land and Natural Resources. And the team has set up a special website at kamehamehabutterfly.com where the public is encouraged to report sightings of the butterfly, its caterpillar, egg, or chrysalis. You can submit photos and a location to create a map that will show the current distribution of the species across Hawaii. Well, entomology professor and principal investigator Daniel Rubinoff said in a statement, there are just a few of us who are trying to cover the entire state and that's impossible, so we really need the public to get get an accurate assessment of the Kamehameha butterfly. The team is reaching out to a variety of people, from hikers to gardeners to conservation groups. The hope is to include the data in a broader study of why the butterfly's populations have dwindled and to develop strategies to preserve and hopefully grow its numbers. Now, I've got to admit, uh, you know, I've been hiking and, you know, probably living a little longer on this earth than you, Ryan, but I've never <laughs> seen <laughs> I've never seen the Kamehameha butterfly. I, I think I have. I mean, it looks a little like the monarch, but it's smaller, like they said. I remember them being more reddish or pinkish, and that's how we would tell them apart. Mm-hmm. And this was way up in the mountains. I think it was above Pearl Ridge when I was a kid. But, yes, it's definitely not something you see in a lot of, in fact, you don't see a lot of butterflies in general compared to, I would say, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I like that this site is up. Easy to remember domain name, KamehamehaButterfly.com. And uh, you can go there right now, in fact, and see these sightings, you know, four on Oahu, three on Maui and such. But it's interesting to see something that was once really populous, very common on Tantalus, apparently, mm-hmm. and now very rare. Well, I, I understand that they feed on the uh, Mamaki plant. And, you know, Mamaki is a relatively common plant. I mean, uh, there's, you know, Mamaki tea. But I guess even around Mamaki, it's not be uh, not very um, common. So right, and you can submit a report if you're not sure. They'll still take it and they'll tell you what you found. Mm-hmm. So if you accidentally catch a monarch butterfly, that's fine. In fact, it can help you identify it. So KamehamehaButterfly.com. A Senate bill that would have limited the use of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones to law enforcement while also putting strict rules on when and how law enforcement could use them has drawn testimony from a wide swath of community stakeholders. The Honolulu Police Department testified yesterday against Senate Bill SB 2608, introduced by Senator Clayton He. The bill would require police to get a warrant before taking to the skies with a drone. That's something that's not even required for HPD to dispatch a police helicopter. Well, HPD says that the drones could help speed up car crash investigations, assist in surveys and searches over large regions, and reach places that cannot easily be accessed by foot. 
HPD Major Kurt Kendrell testified that drones would also help secure large events like the recent Pro Bowl. Meanwhile, civilian drone enthusiasts testified that banning all drone use except for law enforcement would set back innovation and commercial exploration across a variety of industries from real estate to event photography and videography. A number of amendments were introduced to the bill before the Senate Judiciary Committee passed it on for a future floor vote. SB 2608 is one of several bills introduced this session focused on the use of drones in Hawaii. A separate measure, for example, in the House, HB 6091, prevents illegally gathered information from being used in criminal prosecutions and creates a mechanism for victims to collect restitution for potential privacy violations. Now, I got a chance to uh, uh, sit in on the, um, um, I guess, the committee hearing of this uh, bill, and it was pretty interesting because, you know, there uh, were people that were very strongly opposing it, and if you read the the, um, actual language of the bill, it is very, very limiting in terms of how you can actually use a drone. So, uh, it didn't even say, or it actually said that, you know, civilian use is, is prohibited. Right. So, uh, Clayton, he did say, hear the testimony, and uh, Travis Ryan, a friend of mm-hmm. ours, a, a very uh, a strong uh, drone advocate, mm-hmm. um, was very happy with the outcome of it. It was, I think, his first attempt participating in the process, so that was good to see. He even got a picture with Senator Clayton He with a drone, which I thought well, was interesting. I thought interesting. he was even on TV. Right, right, yeah. that too. So, um, But yeah, I mean, it's not just people who want to use drones for fun or for a hobby, for a business. The DLNR was against the bill because they want to use it for reef and wildlife monitoring. Farmers and ranchers would use it for surveys. Even the Nature Conservancy was on the record of supposing it because they want to use it to not just track but even deliver mitigation efforts for invasive species. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, with uh, a lot of technology that is becoming more and more easily accessible, uh, the fact that <clears throat> you can get drones for under a thousand dollars is making it, uh, you know, pretty much available to anybody. And we should mention uh, that our upcoming event, uh, the Unconference on. Uh, March 1st, we will definitely be having a session on drones, and I'm sure legislation will be part of that conversation. Next up, the Fall Corps is a state-of-the-art marine science research vessel operated by the Schmidt Ocean, uh, Ocean Foundation. And as featured previously here on the show, the 270-foot ship is um, spending several months in and around the Hawaiian Islands. Student scientists from the University of Hawaii at Manoa's School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology announced that they have been uh, allocated over 100 days aboard the, aboard the Falcor, spreading out over the next few months, and they head out to sea on Monday. Or they're out, they went out to sea this past Monday. In fact, they just posted a photo to Twitter of a breaching whale. Working with colleagues at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the SOAST expedition will focus on researching the locations and migrations of several whale species. There are two separate projects included in this expedition, both of them hoping to better understand the factors that control whale migrations. For example, specialized acoustic equipment will allow the team to learn more about where whales feed. Well, toothed whales sometimes dive to depths well beyond 3,000 feet, well below what's known as the deep scattering layer out of the reach of sunlight. Smaller fish, crustaceans, jellies are abundant. Uh, But how whales interact with their prey at that depth is largely unknown. The research marks the first ever student-led cruise on the Falkor, which last year hosted scientists from institutions in Canada, Washington State, and NASA. Leading the UH expedition is Ph.D. candidate... um, Adrian Copeland, and you know we've got a got a chance to visit the uh, Falkor, and actually had the Falkor here on the studio uh, in the studio, talking well, the about crew, not the ship. well, not the ship, yeah, but uh, one of the, uh, the the main guys who runs the uh, technical services on the ship. 
Uh, and uh, it's a it's a fascinating, well equipped, uh, you know, very you know, very scientific. In fact, you know, it's a real testament to the fact that there's a lot of interesting things happening in Hawaii to have the Falcor here. You know, like for I think a whole year. Right for most of the year, they're they're going to be doing the Papahānau Mokuakea Marine National mm-hmm. Monument later, uh, Loihi in June and July. After that, they're going to move on to the Solomon Islands and the Mariana Trench. But yes, there is a lot of research they can do here, and uh, you can track them. Uh, Schmidt Ocean on Twitter, and we'll probably be reporting on some of their findings. And then we had the uh, Kanisa Sherfin on uh, last week, and, and she talked. I, I think she's going to be. Doing yes, a, a segment on them too as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, quick note: um, we just heard that the the Hawaiian Electric companies they're on Twitter now, and uh, specifically for Hawaiian Electric on Oahu, they're going to be tweeting outage reports, something that of course citizens have been doing for quite some time. They're at HWN Electric. You can also follow Maui Electric at. Maui Electric and Hawaii Electric Light Company on the Big Island at HI Electric Light. Um, but in any case, um, they're trying to be more visible and putting out more information, although they do say that if you are experiencing an outage or if you need customer support, your best bet is to call them the old-fashioned way. I see. Well, now joining us in the studio is Kathleen Cabral from Leeward Community College, and she's here to tell us about Geek Day. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so excited to be able to talk about this event with you two guys. Well, we're geeks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you guys, um, I mean, Geek Day has been something that I think we've kind of shared uh, kind of a common history because I think it was like five years ago that yes. Geek Day started, right? Yes, yes. We uh, actually started the year before as a part of Mactoberfest right. with HMOS. Right. And I I think one of you or both of you did a session at we, that very. I think we both. Yep, yeah, did, I, yeah, I think so. And um, as it evolved, we realized we had so many resources with our faculty and the staff, mm-hmm. and we have some pretty nice facilities. And we thought the college always wanted to be a true resource to the community, so we kept getting more involved and decided, well, let's do this on our own. And Geek Day has been very successful for us. And it sounds like uh, in addition to a uh, way to show off a lot of the resources and some of the uh, opportunities that are available at Leeward, it's certainly a celebration of general geek topics for the, covering basically the gamut of things that could fall under that umbrella. Yeah, you know, every year we we have a group of, of faculty and staff on campus that get together, and we try to decide, well, is this beginning? Is this intermediate level? Mm-hmm. Should, we, should we go for educators? And we just keep going, well, let's do the stuff that we're interested or fun or excites us now. And uh, so, so this time we're doing we're having a student do a couple sessions on Hangouts on Google+. Mm-hmm. They are far more expert at that than any of the faculty or staff. I mean, I'm looking forward to going to that. Um, we started, as we were talking, and our meetings are incredibly... Uh, raucous, and and it's really hard to keep us focused. Um, We were talking about how many really cool apps there are to save money on shopping. And so, you know, to shop smarter on your smartphone. Well, when we were taking down, everybody on the committee was actually typing and texting into their phones the apps that this guy was talking about, we said, okay, this has got to be a session because we're all interested in it. Mm-hmm. So we try, we try, Geek Day is kind of a, it's a funny name because it's not like you have to be a geek to come. We actually have some really very introductory level courses and sessions. And then this year we're, we're actually doing something on creating your own apps with App Inventor. Well, you know, I think you've uh, already discovered that you can't just stay at the beginning level because... 
of course, there's going to be people that want to know, you know, and, and I guess they need to start at the 101 level, but uh, there's going to be people, if you've done it for five years, there are going to be people that are pretty well five years veterans in a lot of these areas, so you have to kind of have the advanced classes as right. well. Right. You know, I am surprised that now that you mentioned that, there are people who have attended all of the sessions, mm-hmm. I mean, every all year, every year right. and, you know, they're coming back home. We can't wait to see what you guys do now. So there's a little bit of pressure on us to make sure that we keep it fresh, but we have such a diverse group of people from faculty from our information and computer sciences, our digital media, and TV Pro. Along with uh, our the Educational Media Center, there the faculty and staff there. So, this year we have two really fabulous students on on the committee. So they're making sure that we're appropriate, relevant. No, no, that's great. No, that's so you you mentioned uh, Google Hangout, something that I like quite a bit, of course, and uh, various focus on either creating apps or apps that can help you with shopping. Yeah. Um, any of how many other sessions are there? You know, I don't actually know the count. I should because I laid the program out. <laughs> but um, we are offering, let's see, seven rooms, and there's five slots. So there's That's quite a, a lot. few. That's a lot, yeah. And we've got everything from the arts. We've got two uh, art faculty members involved, so you can learn how to draw on a digital um, tablet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you or always do learn, photography events? Or and photography, photography is always, always. We can't offer enough sessions with photography because – Everything everyone owns can take a picture That's now. True. So um, what we try to do is, is keep them up to date on how to not only just technically, but the aesthetics of it, you know, what makes a good picture, even so, if you're taking it on your uh, phone or an, an SLR. So absolutely. Kathleen, uh, where can someone go to find out more information? And uh, this is a free event too, right? So. It is absolutely free because we really want to be a resource to the community. So you just go to uh, leeward.hawaii.edu slash geek day. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Actually, you have to be real geeky. You've got to type the www in first. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's a geek test right there. It is a geek test. So if you just do Leeward and it doesn't work, go up to that URL, <laughs> and there'll be a test later about acronyms, um, and make sure the WW is there, and you'll get all the information you need. Okay, sounds That's good. Saturday. Yes, yes. Saturday. Um, we, the registration starts at 930. There's lots of door prizes, by the way, I Ooh. forgot. And free food in the morning, too. Oh, so it's, it's a place to be. Thank well, you. Thanks, Kathleen, for joining us. And uh, also, we have here Franklin Allaire, and he's here to tell us about the next Science Olympiad. Welcome to the show, Franklin. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, you've been here Since as long as we've been show. here. <laughs> I have a great face for radio. Yeah, well, well, so, so do we. we. <laughs> now, Franklin, uh, the, the Hawaii State uh, Science Olympiad has been around for 10 years. I mean, that's kind of a milestone for your organization. It's uh, it's incredible. Yes, this is our 10th anniversary. We are really, really excited about mm-hmm. it. Uh, and uh, we're for the tournament, we're... I don't want to say we're pulling out all the stops, but we're we're doing a lot of really neat things. Like we're running almost all of the events for Science Olympiad, which is 45 events. So 45 things covering the whole gamut of science, technology, engineering, and math in one day. Now, the Science Olympiad is a national program. And so when you said you're running almost all of the events, when you were first starting out, maybe you'd pick a small handful of these shared events across the country. But now you're pretty much covering the whole range. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, what's really neat is that it's kind of a dual uh, anniversary. Um, We're celebrating, again, our 10th anniversary. But this is the 30th anniversary of Science Olympiad nationally. Mm -hmm. So it's a really, really exciting year to participate. Now, you've grown to the point where now you have to have regionals, right? And 
you have you know these regionals and they perform and now you're having the the statewide. Yes, so we had five regional tournaments: uh, one on Kauai, one on Maui, two on Oahu, and one on the Big Island. Now, do you are you managing on facilitating all of those two? Oh no, oh. I would. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, just wondered. No, uh, I I mean. You know, we have a, a an army of amazing, amazing volunteers uh, that uh, have really uh, taken it upon themselves uh, to to create these life shaping and life changing experiences for students and teachers uh, in these various places. Uh, so they put together the regional tournaments. The students come and participate. And this year we had uh, eleven events for each division, middle school and high school divisions, at the regional tournaments. And uh, the ones that uh, placed overall advanced to the state tournament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I remember, uh, you know, the ones that I visited, I love watching those bottle rockets get launched. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that the public can go and, and, and uh, experience. Uh, maybe yes. you can share some of the ones that, the, you know, instead of, you know, going where the kids are actually, you know, like head head down into some kind of uh, <laughs> study mode. I mean, what are some of the things that people can actually go and view? Uh, probably the, the most popular ones this year uh, are going to be Boomalever, which is an engineering event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to actually be doing a robotics event for the first time ever at Science Olympiad. We'll be doing robotics. What kind, uh, of, what kind of robotics uh, is it's that? A, it's called Robocross. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the students are controlling a robot uh, through sort of an obstacle course uh, type of thing, do so they, that's going to be open to, to the public. They, they, I mean, they can use a kit. Oh, okay. um, it's all it, it, there's spe- uh, uh, you know specs that they have to follow mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. says what they can and cannot do. Uh, so Boomalever, Robocross are really good ones. Helicopters, Elastic Launch Glider, uh, Mission Possible, where the students are building sort of a Rube Goldberg uh, kind of device to do something really, really simple, but through a long series of energy transfers. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the events that are open to the public. Oh, now, cool. I, I definitely liked attending these, even when it, it was like a one was a rubber band car mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get a certain distance. And it was a small room, a classroom, but it was deadly silent because everybody's watching how far these little cars go. Oh, it's amazing. And the level of intensity that these uh, students have, you know, I couldn't even – I felt like if I, if I were going through that, I'd have a heart attack. It's really impressive <laughs> to see the level of, of focus that they mm-hmm. have. Absolutely. I went to a, a training uh, a workshop, and I got a chance to build a helicopter, and we decided just to launch them for fun. You know, no medals, no prizes, just for fun. You know, not even bragging rights because we didn't even know if it was going to fly. And my heart was just pounding. The whole time. So the fact that, you know, there are medals, there are prizes, the top middle school and high school get to go to the national tournament, Mm -hmm. uh, which is in May. And this year is at the uh, University of Central Florida. Uh, You know, those are the kinds of things that are on the line for some of the kids. So uh, where and when is the 10th? Annual Hawaii State Science Olympiad. Well, it is at Leeward Community College. Oh, what, what a coincidence. coincidence. Oh, isn't that <laughs> wonderful? On March 1st, uh, again, it is open to the public. Uh, some of the events are, are open, but people can come on down and check things out, even especially if they're not familiar with the program. Uh, it's going all day. So we start at 8.15. We end at about 3.30. And uh, if you want to learn more, we've got a great website, www.hsso.org. Fantastic. So we have Geek Day this Saturday at Leeward. Uh, Thank you, Kathleen, for being on the air, as well as next Saturday, the Hawaii State Science Olympiad, also at Leeward. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And, of course, that's what's been happening. And we'll take a short break, and we'll return with Naomi Chow and Martha Shantini, who is uh, here 
he, both here to talk about digital libraries. That's right. What are the challenges faced by today's libraries and how are they adapting? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. So you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor island at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio and we're monitoring Twitter. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. What do an eight-day drive in the Great Wall have in common? Both are closer than you think with an early gift to Challenge 2014. The key to an eight-day campaign is building momentum with early giving. And if you give by March 27th, you will be entered into the Beijing is Closer Than You Think sweepstakes. The winner will receive round-trip travel for two from Hawaii to Beijing on Hawaiian Airlines. No donation required to play. See complete rules at hawaiipublicradio.org slash Beijing. And thanks. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lydia B. Smith, producer-director of the film Walking the Camino. I'm Kurt Kuntz, author of A Million Steps. Next time on New Dimension, we'll be talking about the journey. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Naomi Chow and Martha Shantini. And Naomi is the Interlibrary Loan and External Services Program Librarian over at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Martha, meanwhile, is the Department Head of the Desktop Network Services Unit in Hamilton Library, also at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And how are the university libraries leading the way to be more digital? We'd love to hear your comments and questions. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Naomi and Martha, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Good to be here. Now, you know, we um, actually covered both of the uh, stories that came out of your respective areas on the show. And and, uh, Naomi, we we talked about uh, Occam's uh, Reader. And and, uh, Martha, we were talking about the um, the digital newspaper. Uh, Before we get into the specifics of of, um, those projects, I wanted to uh, maybe start with you, uh, Naomi. You know, how do you see some of this sort of I think you told me on the on the phone that you know a lot of the books, the resources that are coming into the libraries now are electronic, and and yes. uh, you see this sort of obviously we've been seeing sort of this mind, this whole shift in in uh, digital content. I mean, is it taking over? Um, I'd say yes, because um, the libraries are tending to purchase more and more in electronic format. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the journals nowadays are in electronic format, and books are moving towards that direction. And um, at this point, because books are licensed, we aren't able to interlibrary loan them. Mm-hmm. We aren't able to share them between libraries, even within the UH system libraries. So. I mean, that's certainly a challenge that we had talked about when we covered the story for Occam's Reader, which is even consumers know that you get digital content, and although technology says that could be infinitely copied and distributed infinitely, mm-hmm. um, the owners of that content 
try to prevent that. So there are restrictions that make it hard for you to do that. Um, and so in order to do interlibrary loans, as one example, you have to be able to work with some of those licensing terms. Now, Martha, um, from your standpoint, though, I mean, your project is one that's of, of great interest to me uh, about taking and finding archived and historic newspapers and publications and making them available digitally. One, because those uh, physical uh, publications are going to deteriorate over time. And secondly, of course, for what would be a very small, perhaps in in some librarians' eyes, a niche publication can still have, you know, wide availability. But because you're at Hamilton Library, and I have many lovely uh, memories of that facility freezing down there in the basement. <laughs> Sleeping? I had, I had a, not that, but I had friends uh, in the library sciences program. Mm-hmm. And even then, we were asking, what is the future of a building like this with rows and rows of books, thousands of square feet to, to house uh, paper? You know, I mean, where do you think that will lead us when we start talking about taking all this stuff digitally will we will libraries shrink suddenly in the future <laughs> well i don't think the physical building will shrink but um the project that we're working on only covers newspapers up to 1923 because that's the copyright um cut off because of the us copyright ah, right. license so there's a huge quantity of printed material between 1923 and modern ebooks that um, is actually, you know, that was the topic of the Google Book um, lawsuit. And um, just it's a huge area that is not yet settled. So there's going to be a certain kind of paper around for a long time. At the university, we have archive collections, and those are things where they're never going to throw away the originals. Mm-hmm. And they have special collections like um, the Hawaiian and the Pacific collection where they're going to keep the originals. In the Asia collection, they have a huge number of books that are in um, different Asian languages. So those are, I mean, they could be scanned, but they'd just be images to mm-hmm. actually be searchable. They're, mm-hmm. You know, those. that's a challenge. So I don't think we're going to, we're not going to disappear that's right good. away. That's good. So, so in terms of uh, the existing collection, uh, a lot of that, like you just said, is is probably going to remain in a paper format. Right. I mean, like, you, but you're digitizing newspapers. Yes. Would those old books get digitized yes. as well? We are. Um, um, as we find funds, um, we are working on scanning older material that hasn't already been scanned by Google, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, Especially in the Hawaiian and Pacific collection, when we find older items, you know, pre nineteen twenty three that um, can be scanned, we are making them available. We have two institutional repositories. Um, one is called Scholar Space, and that is for university um, produced research, like faculty. Um, publications. The other one is called Evols, and that's where we put our digitized um, material that's, you know, like rare books Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. on. We've um, put back issues of the student newspaper, Kaleo, on Evols. Um, The Kapiolani Community College has um, digitized their student newspaper, and it's on a third institutional repository. Um, hosted by our library. So we're, we're putting older material up. We're scanning right now the um, old UH Kapalapala um, yearbooks, mm-hmm. which are just, I mean, they're, they're so much fun to look at. I can, can imagine, even yeah. just for the fashion, perhaps. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. the fashion. You now, know, 
Well, I just, you know, the, the geek part of me is, is yes. kind of curious. What is it? How do you actually do the scanning? Is it, okay, is it well, page by page putting some, it on a scanner? Sometimes. And, the Newspaper Project, which is a, a joint endeavor with the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Library of Congress, is a national program. Um, they're trying to collect, um, to create a digital um, collection of major state newspapers. They want to have every state. At this point, they have 38 states that have contributed. This project involves scanning from microfilm mm-hmm. because newspapers, mostly libraries, scan them into, they would microfilm them, which was photography, mm-hmm. um, and then they throw away the paper because. There was so much. Mm. I mean, if you kept all the newspapers, you'd just be buried like a hoarder. Um, so this <laughs> this is scanned. The newspapers are scanned from microfilm, which has its challenges, but it can be done really quickly with a with a computer system. We um, things like the Kapalapala or the rare books. We do actually put them. We have a big overhead scanner with a plate glass that goes down mm-hmm. flat on the book, so you open it up and the cameras above. And it scans it. And mm. so we have student operators who are literally turn the pages. And, oh, that's you know, good to have yeah. students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interns are good for that. And yes, you, had mentioned, you had mentioned that Google project. And yes. that's actually because they had the resources to do it on a very massive scale. Right. It literally was right. physically opening a book, turning a page, taking yep. a picture, turning a page. You can actually find um, Google Book images with people's fingers. Oh, when they got, they couldn't get their hands out in time. I like that. Mm -hmm. Now, Naomi, your project uh, covers a great deal of content as well, but I would imagine probably uh, more contemporary in the sense that those are the things that researchers and students are trying to get from other libraries. Um, And your challenges, although they're not maybe with physical scanning, are just as great. You had mentioned that licensing prevents, or actually, licensing doesn't prevent ebooks from being exchanged, but there wasn't a platform. To allow it, so even if a, even if a publisher says you could lend this ebook, there wasn't a, a established way to do that. Is that correct? Correct. Although most of the time it is the licensing at this point mm, because okay. the publishers aren't quite comfortable with figuring out whether or not they want us to be able to lend. Um, there's fear about the marketplace. Right. So, so. Uh, tell us a little bit specifically about Occam's Reader. Um, it's a web-based platform, so it would work on any computer. But what is it that um, your your program is contributing to what is actually a, a much larger uh, research project? Okay. Um, well, first I'd like to uh, acknowledge and thank the IT people at UH Manoa at Hamilton Library because they're really the backbone. I'm just kind of more the public face, but they're the ones that know the information technology inside and out. And mm-hmm. that would be Arthur Shum and Aaron Kim in the Library Systems Department and then Wing Leung in the Desktop Network Services Department. So what they've done is they have helped code the um, uh, web interface for the reader part so that the patrons would be looking at uh, the books through the, the reader. Um, overall, I'd say the system is finding a way to transfer the books that we have networked access to. So this is different than the public libraries where, or even a, a personal trade book where you're downloading to a personal device. This you're looking on a network. So you're transferring the book from um, a secured network into another secured network and then offering it via more like a streaming um, medium. So it's turning it more into a read-only 
um, application. Right, you're not giving or distributing a copy of it to Correct. be held. It's Correct. presented, and because it's inside a secure box the same way it was in the original collection, publishers would probably be more open to that. Correct, correct. Now, you know, for uh, folks that might have missed our uh, the show that we actually talked about the Occam's Reader and, and what it really meant in terms of sharing amongst institutions, maybe, Naomi, you can share a little bit about how certain institutions are, are specialized in a particular, let's say, topic, Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. UH to have access to that, you have either to get your own license or have the sharing agreement. Agreement. So how does how does this uh, Occam's Reader sort of make more of this information available across all the institutions out there? Um, well, the GWILA, which is the Greater Western Library Alliance Consortia that mm-hmm. we're a part of, um, is th- are 33 libraries spread across the central and western part of the United States. Libraries tend to form uh, consortia just because it's easier to share resources, um, work on cooperative projects together. Um, and what this particular project is doing is we're going to be sharing back and forth, Springer Books. And Springer is a major science, technology, and medicine publisher Mm -hmm. um, in the academic field. So we'll actually be able to borrow books from, let's say, the University of Arizona that we don't have access Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. And then uh, um, in terms of the the overall cost of, let's say, doing it in the shared arrangement versus buying your own license, uh, is it pretty much a, a wash, or is there a savings uh, in this with this new technology? Um, I guess in terms of a savings, it's with ebooks in general. You're saving in terms of physically storing an item, mm-hmm. and for interlibrary loan, you no longer need to physically ship an item, so you're saving on the shipping costs. But ebooks in general tend to cost the same. Um, and sometimes more than the physical format. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's more of a access to information because the way licenses are currently written, except for the Springer books at this time, um, most publishers deny interlibrary loans. So you can only have the books that you have at your institution. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, I think, where some of the similarities are to uh, Martha's project in the sense that they are also sensitive to the 19, the, the cutoff for copyright to, to have to be in the public domain in order to share them freely. But unlike, I say, Occam's Reader, which I think is aimed at specifically helping libraries and people who use research libraries at universities, um, yeah, Martha, can you tell us about the, the public aspect of this? Because perhaps like a public library, there's a higher calling that this organization is trying to serve in terms of not just digitizing all of these newspapers, but to make them widely available so they can benefit people. Who are the people that uh, that are going looking for these newspapers? Well, you're right. This is um, the Library of Congress. The reason they, they got into this project was um, – there were there were two or three things to make the the primary source newspapers more available to anybody anywhere, um, and to make sure that there was a preservation system in place. So they are promising to preserve the digital files as well as pristine copies of the microfilm um, for future generations. Meanwhile, they they developed um, an online system that is really easy to search, really easy to download pictures. Anybody can do it. If you want to download their entire corpus, 
all the text material they have, because each page is um, optical character recognized, that you can use it for research. That's it's totally in the public domain. Um, people love this thing. I mean, obviously, the first one that comes to mind is genealogists. Genealogists have always wanted to get to newspaper um, data, but. You know, like you were talking about Geek Day and all that. We are, we have in the humanities, we have History Day. Mm-hmm, this right. is fantastic for History Day. Um, we we go through our pages and we pick out ads and articles, and we have a Flickr site that's we're just featuring the fun things you can find. People go there. There's um, one person um, early on in the Library of Congress project created a Flickr site called Mustaches of the Library of Congress, and it was just pictures of men with mustaches <laughs> taken from the newspaper pages. So you, you can just do all sorts of new things with this digital content. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to uh, Naomi and Martha from the University of Foy at Manoa Hamilton Library about Occam's Reader as well as the Newspaper Digitization Project. And if you've got a question relating to getting access to this information and the technology that can make that more widely available, we welcome your call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We're also listening on Twitter. Now, um, Martha, the... The, that that cutoff and the fact that mm-hmm. not everything is in the public domain is really a pressing issue to yes. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking even in Hawaii's Honolulu's history, you had the Star Bulletin and the Advertiser. And right now when I'm looking for an article from 1997, mm-hmm. I find it. But that's only because someone's forgotten to turn off that website. And <laughs> every year I look at it, more and more pieces of this website is broken as they start to mm-hmm. finally unplug these machines. Right. And I fear for the loss of that uh, information because it is still copyrighted. It is still somewhere on the web, but it is not cared for. Yes. Um, in your project, is there a kind of an opportunity or a, an initiative to try to get uh, built, th- think forward for some of the currently still surviving publications to be ready for uh, public access? Oh, well, just as with Naomi, the really the issue is licensing and publishers, and um, it's really tough. Uh, because most newspapers that have switched to digital delivery really aren't thinking about preservation. And when a title ends and the company disappears or is absorbed or whatever, there's really no one there who's taking responsibility for preserving it because, frankly, to them, it's not worth anything. Um, But they don't want to just hand it over either, or there's no one there who can make the decision to say, yeah, we own everything in that newspaper, and we say you can have it. Mm-hmm. We are we are working. We speak with different um, publishers. Like um, we've been in talks with the uh, former editors of Hawaii Observer, which mm-hmm. if you've been here long enough, you remember when that was published. So we're trying to get permission from all the people who were involved in that um, to uh, scan that newspaper um, when it's when it's a uh, dead publication, like really, really totally dead, it often becomes what they call in the Library of Congress and the copyright world an orphan work. And those are, um, you know, is a really interesting area of copyright law right now about how to handle orphan works and what 
can you legally do and what can you legally not do. And, and there's actually a lot of small publications in Hawaii that fall into that category. Mm. So uh, ultimately, when your um, work to digitize some of the, let's say, orphan work, yes. does it become only available to patrons of the University of Hawaii no, uh, our our goal or? our goal is to make everything publicly available. Um, we have some things that are restricted for a period of time, like dissertations. But our our goal is um, to anything that we put up and host and scan. We want it to be made available to anybody. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we want to actually kind of continue that conversation because we're kind of, you know, both open data, open science, open knowledge geeks and kind of curious about where that might be headed, especially in the context of copyrights and, Mm -hmm. you know, and ownership. So hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Naomi Chow and Martha Shantini about the libraries managing more digital assets. How are libraries maximizing their value to their patrons? And of course, we'll talk a little bit about community and public libraries as well. If you've got a thought, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or you can reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is... Bite Marks Cafe. Soon there will be a place within the Honolulu city limits where you can drive at 60 miles an hour with no traffic to slow you down. No, it's not on our highways. It's a one-third mile go-kart track with bank turns, bleachers, special barriers, night lighting, and a grandstand. It's a new entertainment venture coming to town, and we'll hear about it tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. How do you want to die? A lot of times we're doing things to people that we wouldn't do to a terrorist. Let's just keep her alive. Paralyzing somebody when you put a person on a ventilator. Turns out when researchers ask doctors that question, the answers they give are very different. They'll turn to me in the ICU and they say, if you find me like this, kill me. And they're not kidding. How Doctors Want to Die on the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we're talking to Nomi Chow and Martha Shantini about the evolution of a digital library. And, of course, as more content becomes digital, will the library, beco- library become a cloud service? And, of course, if you've got a comment or a suggestion or an idea here, give us a call. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, you know, we're, we're sort of uh, talking about access to a lot of this this information and as uh martha you talk about you know digital newspapers and as you start to become more um more of a repository for uh this digital content you know the idea is to making it of making it more and more available to everybody right at Mm -hmm. uh um and i don't know maybe you can share with us what the what the um barrier to entry would be for that is that something that you have to pay a subscription to get access to or is that something freely available um, well, what we're doing with, with like, the newspaper project, the this is our tax dollars at work, mm-hmm, so it's public mm-hmm. access. Um, we try uh, – what we're interested in providing, uh, because we're the academic library, is access to research materials. So our repository is for um, faculty publications, and um, the other one is for, for scanned research material. Um we are um, we have a um, open access policy publication policy that was passed by um, the UH system. We're one of the 
I don't know, the fifth or sixth university system um, requiring that uh, publicly funded research um, results be deposited for open access somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, the campus is committed to open access. We have a lot of the departments are just really pleased as punch that we have this thing and they'll they'll just they'll bring over like um tropical agriculture they'll just bring over boxes of stuff and say oh please we you'll put that up where everybody can use it great here it is and we're you know as as we have funds we scan it and we make it available well that's that's cool to hear now naomi right now your pilot is with the springer single publisher but of course the objective is to work with other publishers but yes. um, the mention of the the open access to publicly funded research and the fact that you know when when a school churns out thousands of uh, of uh, students that are writing PhD dissertations and that's a lot of research and a lot of published work um, does the Occam's Reader project even look to even smaller than book publishers and to that level of of helping people both protect the license or the ownership of their information but still make it more available, something as small as uh, a cancer research Ph.D. student's dissertation? Um, I would think generally, yes, we are looking towards expanding this. We're hoping it would be one of the models that would be adopted, so to be able to loan um, e-materials back and forth. Specifically with PhD dissertations, those are a little different. They're in this mm. kind of gray area. Some universities put them up in an open um, uh, repository, no problems. Other places are much more restrictive. It depends on how they've handled it with a particular um, author. So so, so I'm, that, that's interesting. So in the case of, let's say, UH, uh, you know, a, a PhD candidate will uh, write their dissert- dissertation. What determines whether that dissertation would be publicly available or not? Is that the student's call or is that some policy at the university? Well, it's the graduate division's um, requirement for PhD candidates is that their dis- dissertation must be published. And making it publicly available uh, in our repository would count as publication they have an agreement with ProQuest, which is a major um, worldwide uh, ah. repository of dissertations. Mm-hmm. So most student, most PhD students deposit them there. They can opt out of the either of those two choices if they have a public a publisher's um, agreement. If they have a book contract, oh, I see, um, and thus. They they retain the copyright to their material, even though it's publicly available. Mm. They are still the copyright owners. So you couldn't just, you know, copy their dissertation off the web, bind it up and sell it. That would be violating their I copyright. See, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, so that, that's good to know. I mean, I'm thinking of, say, Misa Marayama doing really good mm-hmm. research about social media and politics and civic engagement. And I'm thinking... Does she own what she writes? And what you're saying is she does. Right. Um, but there are certainly mechanisms in place that are commonly used. But that she's, you know, she's she doesn't need to worry if she does if she uh, does submit it to this repository that it's not going to be the next best selling book. Right. Without her. Mm-hmm. Right. Our our repository when you submit something as an individual um, or an individual item, you go through a, um, a number of steps, and one of them is you can apply a Creative Commons license to mm-hmm. your material. So. Um, it's right there, you know, what the copyright status is. So, you know, with uh, going back to this, uh, the digital newspaper, is it is it a link that we as the public could easily go the, and, and visit mm-hmm. and find some of the old archive uh, Absolutely. articles? The best place um, to go to see 
all the newspapers from all the states is the main <coughs> Library of Congress site, and that's chroniclingamerica.com. All chronicling America, all strung together, lowercase. Well, case. don't worry about yeah. it. We'll we'll definitely put yeah. it up on our show notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, they have a really really um, excellent interface and this cool thing where you can zoom in on on the image and cut out a piece and copy the JPEG and so on. Mm-hmm. On our repository, we are just posting um, PDFs of the issues. And um, that's evals.hawaii.manoa.edu. No, evals, <laughs> well, if you send it yes. to us, we'll put it over yeah. at Bite search, Marks Cafe. Search for Hawaii Digital Newspaper Project, and you'll find it. Oh, now, yeah. Naomi, I did go to the Occam's Reader website, and, of course, it was a very basic you know, proof-of-concept demonstration that right. you go here, it would kind of look like this, and you'd sort of flip through the page this way. But, um, of course, it's all uh, about the, the the concept, and developing it is going to take more time. Right. Um, one of the things that I noted was, you know, it, it looked like kind of a PDF reader um, using the PDF format, which, of course, if you're able to use it fully, you can search the text, copy and paste the text. Um, when you're working with Springer, though, I mean, what kind of protections are they perhaps requiring when you're presenting their book in this reader? Um, would they still allow me to say, hey, I like this paragraph. I'm going to select it with my mouse and paste it into my, my dissertation? Um, well, actually, it's an image that we're oh, presenting, okay. so it's not PDF. It's mm-hmm. actually being converted from PDF into an image, and that which would are then streamed, so you can't really capture it. You so it prevents you from doing yes, it. yes. So that's one of the securities. So, um, so, so when you, you sort of describe it as streaming, but if you look at a page, it'll come up as a page, but the uh, it's not really. You know, a PDF page per Correct. se. It's just an image Correct. of a page Correct. that's, that's Correct. in essence streamed to your computer. Correct. So that is the beauty of of this particular project, and that was really the brainchild of um, Ryan Litzy and Kenny Kettner at Texas Tech, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on which we're helping them. Well, I can certainly see how that might ease the publisher's concerns. Mm-hmm. But you know, already uh, as a user, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to look at a picture of a book. I right. I, I want to search this book. I want to be able to use that data. And immediately, I'm like. Okay, well, let's see. I could screenshot five pages mm-hmm, in a row and mm-hmm. put it into an OCR program. Yep. And, and just like with the protections that are in place for preventing you from copying a DVD, uh, a very devoted and dedicated geek will find a way around that, though. Um, but uh, do you feel that this kind of is enough of a halfway ground that you can move forward with this project? Um, yes, because libraries also have this already in terms of photocopiers and scanners, it's really the onus is on the person who's doing the copying, so we're protected in a way because mm. we've put up uh, I guess uh, I warning guess. labels. <laughs> warning labels, <laughs> so we're hoping that um, there wouldn't be major abuse, because if there is major abuse, um, then of course publishers aren't going to be willing to share their content, right. mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's what the pilot is about. It's really seeing are the publishers going to feel comfortable enough? And more importantly, are the users going to accept this particular format? Mm-hmm. It's really a compromise. It's a way of presenting content that they wouldn't otherwise have access to um, in quite such an immediate um, access point as well. I guess uh, from a balance standpoint, I mean, how do you feel in terms of you know, making the information available but limiting the manner in which people can search that information. I mean, there's obviously the protection of the publisher and their copyrights, uh, but at the same time, 
you know, by limiting it to just images, I mean, obviously now there's a balance between freely accessible and, and having sort of limitations on how you can get access to this information. Right. Well, interlibrary loan and libraries are always playing this balancing act, and we're thinking perhaps this is just musings at this point. Uh-huh. Um just like we do with uh, journals, if we go over so much usage in interlibrary loan for journals, the library that's been borrowing these things on behalf of their users is obligated to either pick up a subscription or pay copyright to the copyright holders, the publisher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way, having this limited access will make the library decide, well, if the patrons really want to have full access, we really should be purchasing oh, I see. or and, and, licensing. And full access book. would be a, 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 a regular PDF type file where you can search. Correct. Text. Or whatever platform that the publisher has it, which is We're yeah. talking to Naomi Chow and Martha Chantony from the University of Foy at Mano and Hamilton Library about the future of digital libraries. And we have a question from Twitter. I think this is for you, Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from Rodney wanted to know that if a uh, he saw handwritten music written by Queen Liliuokalani on a program, for example, and uh, are those the kinds of things that would also be supported? Can you search that text? Sometimes the artifact, the newspaper, is not just what was printed, but what might be annotated or added on by hand. Is that something right. that you... Um, OCR character recognition of handwriting is <laughs> not good. Not happening um, for very special uh, materials, and that might be one um, which would probably be handled by the state archives. They are developing a digital um, collection too. What you need is, uh, in the librarian geek jargon, um, <laughs> is metadata, and if you were if you wanted to make that fully searchable you'd actually have to have someone transcribe it mm. into um, a metadata field mm-hmm. you know an abstract or you know so it would be um, text searchable most things um, at least need um, enough metadata to be found so it has to have a sufficient description and a date and in the case of artifacts um, a lot of people, a lot of uh, collections include things like the size and the condition and who it came from and, and other sorts of things. You know, uh, one of the things that we wanted to kind of briefly explore is, uh, you know, you're, you're, at, you're both at the University of Hawaii at Manoa Libraries, and, and it's uh, much more, I consider probably, you know, an academic environment as compared to perhaps uh, uh, the public libraries. And your work is really sort of pioneering and at the forefront of, of digitization of content. Uh, how do you see sort of the libraries evolving from the university perspective uh, and, and how you might perceive, let's say, the public library and how it's evolving in this sort of digital world? Well, you know, the the whole issue um, that Occam's Reader is addressing, the, the fact that more and more new books are only being published in e-format, mm-hmm is a major uh, consideration, is key to the public library's future because the public library, once books all become e-books, unless a system like Occam's Reader is worked out with all publishers, they're basically not going to be able to lend books because, you know, they're not going to buy a million e-book readers and lend the e-book readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there either has to be, by that time, some method for publishers and libraries to, you know, compromise on profit and so on. 
uh, to continue to make ebooks available for free to the public, which is the public library's, you know, basic premise, or the public libraries are going to have to turn into a different kind of venue, um, which many of them are moving that way. And I should mention that the Hawaii State Public Library System does have an e-book program. There right. is the ability to loan, and um, it is, but it is DRM-based. It's license-based. Right. It's very restrictive, right. and it depends on whether, again, the device manufacturers and the publishers are willing yes. to play in that. And a lot of them are like only in EPUB format or only in um, this particular kind of PDF, and so not every reader can read, you know, every physical reader can actually, you can't actually borrow the book and read it on all physical readers. So, yeah. yeah. Now, Naomi, um, in the the minute we've got left, uh, this project is just, just getting off the ground, Occam's Reader. What is the next milestone that you see? You've got your publisher partnership. Mm-hmm. You've got a proof of concept on the web, but mm-hmm. what is your team working on? What's the next uh, achievement they want to reach? Oh, boy. Next achievement. Well, besides getting the project off the ground and having the different libraries actually using it back and forth, um, I guess I could say that we are looking at expanding outside of just Gwila because that's one difference as well is that this would be an open application that would be available to all different libraries, not just the Gwila libraries. Or the Western Western Association. Right, right. And then um, also looking at different publishers and formats as well. Mm -hmm. So. And Martha, in terms of, uh, you know, as you start to expand your archive, I'm kind of curious maybe if there's a connection between, I don't know if you know um, Heather Juni and the uh, the actually film archive project that ah, she's right. working on. I mean, are is there an intersection between projects like that? Ah, well, I don't know if there's an intersection. Um, video archiving, digital video, video is, I mean, that's very space- um, intensive, just storage space intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're sort of concentrating on textual material and um, still images. Mm-hmm. At the university, our next step will probably be um, research data sets um, as the next big thing. That there's a lot of it out there in digital form that's just that's not organized and not um, collected. And so departments can bring boxes over to your office. Uh, well, hopefully they'll they'll bring they'll send files to us. Um, this I is see. the raw data behind oh, oh, the right. the research publications. That's what um, the university is probably going to look at next. Um, video archiving is happening out at West Oahu, right? And that's where Heather's yeah. uh, project is. So, so now that you've uh, you know we we've all sort of met. I would hope that you would let us know when you have some new sort of archives that you're going to be releasing <laughs> so that we can share that uh, with our our listeners. Uh, Naomi Chow is UH Manoa's Interlibrary Loan and External Services Program Librarian, and Martha Chantini is the Department Head for Desktop Network Services and the lead behind the Digital Newspaper Project. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Mahalo. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk to the winners of the latest Startup Weekend, Honolulu. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Rufus and a song called Desert Night. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. You said 
try.